for a generation, James Dean from the 1950s uh, was typed as the ultimate rebel. And he was aided and abetted by his brief stint in Hollywood. He died very young at 24 in 1955, having been born in 1931. And in 1955, his movie that was critically acclaimed, uh, The Rebel Without a Cause, came out. But he was a bit of a character who pushed back against the boundaries. He was a new character in Hollywood ahead of his time, unlike other uh, heroines that were celebrated. He was a, 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 a new kind of character who was restless with the status quo. He was pushing the edge on everything and beating back against the boundaries, sexually, emotionally, behaviorally. And he died suddenly in a car wreck, which added to uh, what was captivating about him being this rebel. He would debut in the 1950s, uh, 10 years ahead of the counterculture movement of the hippies in the 60s who were restless and pushing back against the establishment and uh, beating on the boundaries. But he became a bit of an envied prototype. Men wanted to be like James Dean. They wanted to push the boundaries too. By the way, men of Calvary, let me ask you this morning, who do you want to be like? And why do you want to be like them? How, how influenced are you? How influenced am I by what the culture says to us about the kind of men that we are to be? Is rebellion just a male problem? Is it sequestered to just that gender? Does anyone recognize that female angst and rage has led the efforts in the streets in the last 18 months in America? Is rebellion possible for both men and women? Does rebellion present in many different kinds of forms? If you can stand the word, isn't it true that rebellion is polymorphous, has many forms? Since it's just us, can we ask this morning, is rebellion an issue at Calvary? Is rebellion an issue at Calvary Christian School? There's a cultural vibe that is seducing many that goes something like this. Rebellion is a bit of an exciting adventure. Faithfulness is overrated. And quite frankly, it's a little boring. Get out there and push back. By the way, Esau bought that line hook, line, and sinker. He swallowed it whole. He lived out that approach to God and that approach to life, and it showed up in then what he experienced. Come with me to Genesis chapter 26, and we return to the Esau story this morning.
Esau believed lies and they tied his life up into knots. This morning, we want to go three different directions. First, we want to study his life. In general, what we're doing is we're studying his life and we're looking at lie number three, which is this. Daring boundary pushes, James Dean-esque, daring boundary pushes always work out well. Daring boundary pushes always work out well. That's the lie that he believed. So what we want to do first is we want to crawl into this story and see again, number one, that Esau's story reads like the poster boy for the born-to-be-wild society. Secondly, we want to face the lie. Here's the lie. Daring boundary pushes always work out well. And finally then, to end on a very hopeful note that I know about firsthand. What are the strategies that Jesus uses to bring rebels to himself? And so that's where we'll end. That's our plan of attack. So first, Esau's story reads like the poster child for the born-to-be-wild society. Now, on July the 14th, 1969, a new kind of movie was released. It was, uh, it was made with production costs that weren't very expensive. Then it made a lot of money. It was Easy Rider starring Peter Fonda. It was the story of Peter Fonda and his buddy, played by Dennis Hooper, who leave California. I don't recommend you watch the movie. I haven't. I've read about it, but I remember it. And I'm going to tell you about a song. In fact, more than tell you about it, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to a little song to crawl into Esau's skin this morning. But the movie came out, and it was really a footnote on the hippie countercultural movement. They weren't living within the norms of the establishment. They take off on Route 66 on these motorbikes and get a hitchhiker. I mean, drugs, alcohol, illegal activity, brothels. They end up, and they, they had, Fonda had a bunch of money in his tank from a drug sale uh, that they, he was uh, carrying the cargo for the money, and they were headed to New Orleans. But it was just two guys on the wild side. It was a counter, it was a footnote on hippies not conforming to the standards and doing whatever they wanted to and pushing the boundaries. And of all things, they, they got uh, Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild to be the theme song for the movie. So it thunders and and I know we can't stand too much of it, but can we stand 15 seconds of it? Because if we would ever get a song which would characterize Esau's life, here's what it would be. Born to be this is Esau. Born to be now I know half of you want to listen to the rest of the song. And the other half of you, I'll never see you again. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is Esau. 
I mean, isn't it great to get out there and just do whatever you want and push back against all the boundaries? That was the archetypical song to be the soundtrack for Easy Rider. We're crawling into the story of Esau as he mounts not his Harley, but his M.O. in life, which was rebellious. And he gets embittered by what happened. In, the last time we had him, he was in the kitchen and had lost his inheritance over a bowl of red stew. Genesis 25. Now let me stop and say, one of the problems with doing a series on Esau is uh, twofold. Number one, never in the history of Christian preaching has everybody, anybody ever done a series on Esau. And, and the reason is, is because he's not a dominant figure. Jacob is the dominant figure. The text takes up Jacob. But there's enough of pieces of narrative in the story that we're cobbling together that speak relevantly into the vein of our life. Now, Please stay with me. And those of you who say, does Mounts believe we're all 100 years old? 1953, you know, 19, the 1960s. Stay with me if you've had that thought. And I know that several of you have already. I'm going to come back to that. That's very important. But we're cobbling together some pieces of his life to look at his story. Esau's story reads like the poster child for Born to be Wild. And Esau's story unfolds in two movements. Movement number one, Esau married multiple Canaanite women in spite of his heritage. Now come with me to Genesis 24 and verse 3. Abraham, the father of faith, the father of the Jewish nation is dying. And he's concerned with Sarah about his son. Or, no, Sarah's, Sarah's gone. He's, he's concerned about with his servant about who Isaac's going to marry. And what he's concerned about is that Isaac would get his life tangled up with the Canaanite woman and it would spoil God's intentions for the family. And so he says in Genesis 24, verse 2, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Hear the word of the Lord. Here is Abraham who is dying in his waning breaths. He's trying to sort this out. And he's saying, whatever we do, we can't have Isaac marry the Canaanites. He knew that alliance would not be healthy. He's concerned about this. So, one would have to consider that he passed this concern on to Isaac, who did not marry a Canaanite woman. He marries Rebekah, provision from the Lord, identified to the servant who went back home where Abraham was from. But notice what is said in the text about what Esau does. Look at chapter 26, verses 34 and 35. Here we pick up one of the Esau fragments. When Esau was 40 years old, I'm reading Genesis 26, 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judah, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife. And Besamoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. 
So he has two wives, as is recorded in Genesis 26. Come over to chapter 36. Here we pick up another fragment, Genesis 36, 1 through 4. Here's what is described. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Oholibama, the daughter of Enah, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite. And Basimoth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basimoth bore Reul. And Oholibama bore Jewish, Jalom, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So here we have four wives that he married from among the peoples in Canaan. Now clearly Ishmael's daughter has Abraham's blood. He marries his cousin. But the others are taken from among the Canaanites. Here's Abraham, the father of faith, who has the grandson marry these folks. Now Esau's choices mangled up his family's relating. Notice chapter 26 and verse 35 and what is said about Esau in another comment dropped in the text. The Hittite wives of Esau, Genesis 26, 35, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. They made life bitter. The family system felt the strain of the choices that Esau made. What were the results? Conflict, sorrow, and acrimony. Chapter 27 and verse 46. Notice what Rebekah says. I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Now here's a picture of a mangled beam. It's actually from an old factory in Mount Vernon, Ohio. It had a million square feet, and now they made a really neat park out of it and left some remnants of the building and painted up this old mangled thing. The family, that's a picture of how Esau's family related as he pushed against the boundaries and made these choices. He mangled them all up. Now, here's Rebecca in chapter 27 who tells Isaac, I loathe my life. I despair my life because of these women that Esau's brought into our family and the entanglements that this has brought us and how we relate. Don't let Jacob marry one of the Canaanites. Let's get Jacob out of here and send him back to where I am from and let's get him a wife in that way. Now, this sounds reasonable, like a mother watching out for her son, because as soon as it dawned upon Esau that in that red stew he had lost everything, he had homicidal thoughts. He was ready to kill his brother Jacob. Now, Rebecca, who in the guise of what it sounds like personally reasonable, I loathe these women, they are tyrannizing me, uh, let's not let him marry a Canaanite woman, She's also scheming to preserve his life because she knows that if he stays around here and marries, his brother's going to kill him. 
because his brother's really angry with him. And maybe we can get him out of the area for a while. But this, Jacob, was he a schemer? Absolutely. Was Rebecca a schemer? Absolutely. And so she's working the angle too. But she overpunted her coverage. In this scheme, when Jacob left, she would never see Jacob again. Oh, what, tang- what is the phrase? Oh, what tangled webs we weave when we purpose to deceive. And it really came home to her. Now, that's the story, the history behind this poster boy for Born to be Wild. Esau was animal-like with all of his hair and animal-like with the choices that he made and his behavior. Now, let's face this lie, secondly, then. Daring boundary pushes always work out well. Now, let me come back to those of you who said, Mounts, what, do you think we're all born, you know, in, in the 30s and the 40s so we can really relate to James Dean and Easy Rider? Nobody even knows who Peter Fonda is. Andy and I were talking this week, and we were talking about this, this point and what I was trying to make. And she said, Eric, you need to update your illustration of a rebel. Come on. 1953, are you kidding me? You know, 1969, what's wrong with you? Come on. Now, she said it in a real nice, loving way. I, I, I. Um, and so we had a talk, and I said, okay, who's the James Dean, that daring boundary pusher? Who would be the James Dean of today? Now, intentionally, I left those oldies in there because... What was avant-garde and out of the usual in 1953 and showed up in the counterculture of the hippies who were pushing all the boundaries in the 1960s is now so mainstream and regular fair behavior that nobody is iconically identified as the great rebel. Do you know who the great counterculture movement is today it's gospel christianity we are the ones pushing back against a culture that has no boundary john stott well did he entitle his book on the sermon on the mount he entitled it christian counterculture because if you live for christ you are swimming upstream against a culture in fact in the little credits in the run-up to if you're watching any of the chosen which i would encourage you to watch uh, the, the story of Jesus being produced and, and being crowdsourced and funded. It's interesting. Uh, but the, the, it's, it's the picture of these fish swimming and then a fish that turns around and changes color and starts swimming against the stream because that's us. We are now the great counterculture. And I use those old illustrations to make this point that's very important. Pushing the boundaries used to be unusual. Now, it's a way of life. Make up your own boundaries. What's the jingle in, if you're watching the Olympics, in the one commercial, or the guy, the the skateboarder, he says, now we create our own reality. And it's not God's and what he has revealed for our good in his holy boundaries within which humans flourish by his intent. 
outside of which we face Esau's demise. Now, there's two points in facing the lie. The wisdom of rebellion fades over time and disappears altogether in the presence of God. You've watched it with me. You name the expression of rebellion, experiencing with chemicals, abusing prescription drugs, porn, adultery, cheating, embezzlement, business treachery. Whatever people were thinking in the moment, 10 years later, it looks different. By the way, have you noticed with me that 30-year-old tattoos don't age well? <laughs> now, you, you can get your whole body tattooed. I don't care. That's fine with me. We'll still relate. But that's a little metaphor for uh, these choices, these daring choices that we make. Some of them don't age well. Some wake up and see where rebellion has taken them, and some don't. They just keep in that same tranche. Remember the guys that went to arrest Jesus in the garden? That Roman SWAT team? It seemed so good. Yeah, let's go get Jesus. We're going to get him. Yeah, it's going to be great. They put all their gear on. They get in the garden of Gethsemane. They, yeah, we're going to get him. And they go up. And he says, who do you seek? John 18, 6. We're seeking Jesus Christ. He turned to them and said, I am he. And suddenly before him, they didn't have all that moxie that they had when they entered the Garden of Gethsemane. They were on the ground, having been exposed to the majesty of the glory of God in encountering Jesus face to face. John said, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. I promise on the great day, our rebellion will look different, standing before a holy God, having to give account. The great day is going to be a day like no other. Everybody's going to have to stand before him. Now, the second uh, point in facing this lie is that venge vengeful choices to get back at your families bring disastrous outcomes. What happens? Esau loses his inheritance over this bowl of red stew and he gets upset. And you say, well, Eric, he made this choice in spite of his Jewish heritage and Abraham being the father of faith. And there's the insinuation in the text, although it's not clear. I think it can be read this way. It's the way I read it. He didn't make the choice in spite of his heritage of faith. He made his choice to spite his heritage of faith. That what Esau was doing was he was sticking it to his mom and dad. He wasn't stupid. He knew that his mom would be tyrannizing his dad if he took off on some flight. Do you know that some people make choices and say, well, I'm, you know, I've had it with my tyrannical parents, and that's their view. So I'm going to push back and make this choice and that choice. You're just shooting yourself in the foot. Proverbs 11:29 says, whoever troubles his own house will inherit the wind, and that's nothing. You'll lose everything. You'll be Esau. We've watched children make choices as they blasted into adulthood. I'm going to get back at my dad. Or I know this choice will embitter my mom. I'll just stick it to her. I'll stick it in the ear with this choice. That's Esau's world, and it's a bad lie to own. And that lie must be rejected. 
Daring boundary pushes always work out well. No, they don't. They don't at all. Now, Eric, that's kind of dark. That's negative. Give me some hope and light. What means does Jesus Christ use to run down the rebel heart? Adam had a rebel heart. He gave us a rebel heart. If you're here this morning and you've never recognized that you have a rebel heart, note to self, let me, let me give you the first one to tell you. You have a rebel heart. We all do. And his grace changes our heart. And he gives us a new heart and a hope. What are God's strategy to deal with rebel hearts? Three means have been identified in Scripture. Number one, consequence. Jesus sends the rebel to the school of hard knocks. This is the law of sowing and reaping. Some call this strategy by our Lord, by its other name, reality therapy. Real life hits you in the face. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If he sows to the flesh, the flesh shall reap corruption. If he sows to the spirit of the spirit, he shall reap eternal life. Proverbs 13, 15 in the English Standard Version says, the way of the treacherous is their ruin. The old King James phrase is iconically remembered by many. The way of the sinner is, it says it more simply, hard. You want a hard life? Go out and break the Ten Commandments. Just start there uh, three times a week and then watch how that works out for you. Rebellion is self-defeating, but it can only be seen after the fact. And that leads us to the second strategy of our Lord, not only consequence, but conviction. Jesus awakens the rebel to his view of this rebellion and where it is headed. Come with me to John chapter 16. We've looked through this and going through the upper room discourse. Let me read John 16, 8. Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit's work, and when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they did not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Hear the word of the Lord. Conviction. God runs a rebel down with conviction. That is the work of the Spirit of God to identify sin in our own heart. And here, Jesus begins to unpack the ways that we are convicted. We are awakened to the true nature of righteousness when we are convicted. By the way, this is why Moses takes his shoes off at the burning bush. He began to realize the holiness of God. Now, our second child, boy, Ben, played golf when he grew up. It was so fun to follow him in junior golf and, uh, and went on, played four years in college. And we love our kids so much, Caleb, Ben, and Abby. Abby was here last week, and the uh, world's greatest friend new granddaughter was here as well, but uh, Riley. But anyway, um, Ben played golf. We bought him some golf clubs. At the time, my view of golf clubs was, hey, get a decent set, and you're set. You know, then it's all your swing, man, the swing. Clubs, don't be giving me all this stuff about technology and new stuff. And by the way, they manufacture new products every four minutes, and they try to convince you you have to have them, and they're all about $350 a piece. You know, you've got to have the, the latest and the greatest, and this will do the longer, straighter, better, this and that. So uh, we got... 
we quit Ben. And I kept telling Ben, oh, Ben, I know standards. I know clubs. That's what you need. Go work on your game. Go to the range. And he'd spend hours on the range. We decided we'd get in a national junior tournament. We said, where do we want to go? Oh, let's go to Kiwa Island. That sounds fun. So we, we got in the Callaway National Junior Tournament. And any, anybody can get in. You know, you pay your money. They'll take it, and they'll let you in. Dan Marino's son was there, you know, 12 years old, shot a 75 first day, 77 seconds. Like, oh, are you kidding me? But anyway, uh, so Ben's there. And, and, and so then he's up against all these national junior players. And what we learned as you get in the junior circuit is scratch golfers, that means really good golfers that make par on every hole, are a dime a dozen for these kids under 18. It's amazing. So um, we, we step up, first tee, you know, and Ben's giving me all these lines. Dad, I need this, this, this equipment. I, I have subpar equipment. No, man, you, your equipment's equipment. It's just, you know, I know equipment. Go ahead, get out there. So then I watch these guys. Ben had been in great form, hit the ball, you know, straight down the middle, long way. Then the next guy would stand up with one of these, you know, drivers in the latest commercial, and he'd hit the ball, and, you know, 75 yards past Ben's ball, it's flying. I'm going, man, that guy's swing must really be better than Ben's swing. And then I watched this for two days and realized that my standards for golf clubs were not representative of what was true about golf clubs. And I had a rude awakening when I was exposed to the true nature of decent clubs. I think that trip cost me almost another $800, $900 that sticks stuff in his bag to keep him going. But I realized that my standards are wrong. Now, we can cruise along in life and say, sin doesn't matter, sin's not a big deal, who cares? I'm as good as that guy. And then suddenly, we are convicted. We are awakened to the true nature of righteousness. It's like working at an atomic energy plant where there can be leaks of radiation. Undiscernible as they begin before they lay hold of your system. So you have all these instruments that can tell you whether or not radiation is leaking out. It's not like you, you realize it in the moment. It's undiscernible. And so you have these Geiger counters. You can be in the environment and be totally unaware of what's going on. And then, you know, one of these uh, safety guys comes in and he's wearing a Geiger counter and you hear it start ticking. Oh, good night. And he says, you guys need to get out of here. And so you were in an environment with no perception that there was anything wrong, but he switch, turns a switch on and you realize, hey, wait a minute, I am in peril. So it is with the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. The true nature of righteousness comes home to us. We say, oh, you mean it's not just pretty good, it's be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect? Oh, good night, I'm not up to that standard. The true nature of righteousness, the true nature of coming judgment. You mean God cares about whether or not I'm involved in this? You mean I've offended God and the, the switch is flipped? And suddenly the whole calculus has changed. That's the convicting power of the Spirit of God. It's a grace gift from God. Now the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's a way back to the Father, notwithstanding our offense. And when the switch is flipped and we recognize that we don't have the right stuff and who cares about what's in your golf bag, it's the right stuff to be accepted before a God who is holy. But God sent Jesus Christ to the cross of Christ to take down the consequences of our sin, its guilt, its penalty, our hell that we deserve. 
was taken by him. So that in his resurrection, he promises the hope of eternal life. And when we receive Christ as our Savior, being awakened to, hey, wait a minute, my sin is a problem. I don't have the right stuff. We come to have eternal life. And don't you ever forget that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And there's a way in. If you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I'm so glad you're here. If you're here this morning experiencing right in this moment what Jesus is talking about when he says the Spirit will come and he will awaken you the true nature of righteousness, the true nature of sin, and the true nature of coming judgment. If you're being convicted, know that God is opening the door of your heart and inviting you to himself. Receive him this morning. Trust in him. It's one of our four R's. Rely upon Jesus Christ as the hope of your eternal salvation. If you'd like to talk to somebody before you leave, we'd love to do that. Daniel prayed this in Daniel 1. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Now, the third means that Jesus uses to bring us to himself is a little surprising. Consequence, conviction, here it is, kindness. Fancy that. Jesus lovingly reaches out to the erring heart. Romans 2, 4, it is the, here it is, kindness of God that leads us to repentance. What? Kindness? I thought it was hellfire and brimstone runs us down. By the way, hellfire and brimstone will run us down in the end if we do not receive Jesus Christ as Savior. That's what's before us. But it is God's kindness that runs us down. God runs us down not with brute force or hellfire or brimstone, but with kindness. Oh, yes, rebels will face fire and brimstone and hell in the eternity. But while they live, God offers kindness and grace. And it overwhelms the rebellious heart. I worked two summers with Esau. I loved him. He's the neatest guy, the most colorful personality. But he came out of the womb to bend the rules, and he did. He was profane. He was tawdry in his speech. He was such a fascinating guy. He'd been a policeman in our city. He decided that it would be to his benefit if he would begin harassing and stalking the mayor of the town and writing uh, piddly tickets just for kicks and giggles. And so he did. He didn't last long on the police force. But he slided over in a, another sector where I was working for two summers. I walked up on him one day having an ad hoc seminar on how to commit adultery and how to get it done. And uh, just a flaming rebel. I will always remember I was actually a flagman on a road crew, so I'd get stuck with a driver for the day. And I don't do everything right, and I still don't, and I need to share Christ more than I do. But I would pray, and I'd try to turn the conversation around. So I got a reputation. <laughs> if you get mounts the flagger, you're going to get Jesus during the day, you know. And, so, um, and I kept a little log trying to track with who I was talking to. But, um, you know, my buddy, he, he was a little frightening, rebellious, so I thought, man, I, I don't know how he would take that, and he stunned me one day, we were sitting in the garage, he said, Mounts, are you going to talk to me about that stuff, 
but it wasn't a taunting. It was a desirous cry from a rebel's heart. Now God knows your heart and mine and his, and he died. He died in a rest home, estranged from his family, estranged from most everybody else, and died by himself. He died a rebel. Oh, he may have thought it was fun and edgy and adventurous. He believed a lie. And God is calling us through his word in this story that you saw away from that. So that we could be preserved within the boundaries of what God ordained for our good. And flourish as his followers, knowing of his blessing. Father, it's easy to preach and it's harder to live. But help us live in our weakness and our susceptibility to the power of the flesh and our own indulgence. Help us live in a way that would bring you pleasure. Help us avoid this lie and recognize the law of sowing and reaping. Help us, Lord. Speak to our hearts this morning. Listen to us as we gather in your presence right now with contemplations before you. Are there edges of rebellion in our heart? Pride, contention, immorality, anger, wrath, malice, loathing, this good way of righteousness that you've called us to. How we need you. We don't want to be Esau. Yet the more we're around him, the more we feel like we're not very far away from his heart. Cleanse us. Come to us. Make us. Shape us. Speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and respond.